Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mike Boris. We all know this is like across us every single day. Plastic is everywhere. It's a massive problem, 100%. Just the other day when I was at the gym, after I finished training, I ordered a protein shake and they gave it to me in a plastic cup. I probably held it for like 30 seconds. I downed the thing. I drank it really fast. But the problem is I finished the drink, but this thing's going to last a lifetime. And today's guest, Mike Smith, he hates this problem too. So he set out to solve it with his new business, ZeroCo, Z-E-R-O-Co. Now, he's founded it and launched it in just November last year, so it's like barely six, seven months old. They deliver home cleaning and personal care products direct to your door, minus all the single-use plastic. ZeroCo is still deep in the starter phase, but it's attracting thousands, actually, 30,000 customers across Australia, from Dubbo to millennial households in the inner city, everywhere across the joint. And I reckon it's because people want to get on this journey with Zero Co. too. I do as well. The packaging is really cool. It looks good. It feels good. And if you jump on their Instagram, it's fun and interesting. And you feel good when you buy one of their products. From my point of view, I'm definitely going to use it. So my questions to Mike Smith is numerous, but like, how did you get on this journey? Take me through your process of being an entrepreneur. And what the hell was it or where was it that you finally decided you're going to solve a global problem? and starting off right here in Australia. How the hell would you raise the money for it? So let's get into it. Mike Smith, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about you first. You've got a pretty uh, out there backstory. (laughs) Um, You know, everybody wants to know how entrepreneurs get into business, and your business is a new business. This business is a new business. Zero Co is a new business, relatively speaking. It launched, what, December or something, November last year? November last year, yeah. Yeah, November last year. Um, We'll talk about that in a second. But in terms of the build-up to getting into these businesses, um, like we have all these people who aspirational, they're working in various environments and they're sort of um, shuddering to think, how do I get into business on my own? Um, you've obviously done – you've done a few times, not obviously, but you've done a few times. Yep. Uh, take me through maybe your first crack at being an entrepreneur. <laughs> the, the very first one, Mark, yep. was when, when I first had this little inkling about, oh, the, that's a thing, you can do that. Uh, I was in high school and I played in a band, terrible, terrible loud rock and roll music, 16-year-old. Um, and the guys I played in the band, we, we decided we we're going to put on a show one weekend in, in the Christmas holidays um, to try and make some money. Um, and so we went around to like the caravan parks. I grew up in a small town on the North coast, went around to the caravan parks and put up posters and 
walked up and down the street selling tickets to this this event we were putting on. Um, and we ended up having like 800 people come to this gig. And so we made like $1,000, which when you're 16 is like a crazy amount of money, right? So we split we split it up between the four guys in the band, 250 bucks each, and we were, we were loaded, right? 250 bucks. Um, and that was the first time in my life where I, I had that moment of, oh, if you, if you have an idea to do something and you go and talk to people about it and they come, you, you create a thing. Um, so that was the very first moment, I think, where I thought, oh, cool, maybe maybe I can do that. But later on, though, I mean, you're, you're still at school, yep. Yep. You, you finished school? Finished school. Yeah, so yep. you finished school. Did you go on to do any tertiary education? Yeah, or? I moved to Sydney, yep. came to the Big Smoke. Where, where were you from? A little town called Sawtell, just south oh, of yeah. Coffs Harbour. Yeah, I know Sawtell. Um, yeah. I've been up there surfing. Um, so you, you, you grew up in Sawtell and you decided when you finished school, you go to a university, you moved down to the Big Smoke. Yep. Came and to Sydney, went to UNSW, did a commerce degree. Yep. Oh, you must have done pretty well in HSC because it's hard to get a UNSW commerce degree in your era. Yep. That's not an easy course to get into. My it's, parents were school teachers. So yeah, um, that works. I had school at school and school at home. Yeah, that works well. <laughs> works well in terms of um, hitting the number. Um, and you did a commerce degree. Um, yep. What's your major in? I majored in marketing. Marketing. Yeah. Yep. So uh, what year was that? Uh, I finished high school two thousand and one. So yep. then I finished uni two thousand and four. Right. I guess it was. Okay. So maybe. Yeah. So you're in the Australian School of Business. Mm-hmm. Would you get a job after that? Yeah, I went and got a job in an advertising agency. Um, cause I thought that, that sounds like fun. Old school agency. Old school agency. Compared to these days. Yeah. That, that's right. Was um, it a big agency or like a boutique? It was thing? a boutique agency. It was called Naked Communications. Yep. Um, oh, at, I know these guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was kind of the hot shot agency for probably five years there. Yeah. I, I actually think they did something for wizard naked. They might've. Yeah, they did. Yeah. hundred percent. Matt yeah. Baxter. I can't, remember the, I can't remember the names of the guys, but Mike Wilson. I remember the name and I remember us, our marketing guy, head of marketing, actually told me about them and we, we, they did a few ads for us on television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it was an amazing little moment in time where they were, it was a, it was a global agency. It was kind of like 30 people and they had five offices, I think. Um, but it was just this melting pot of really smart, creative people and being able to get in there as 23 or whatever I was and just soak up a way of thinking about the world and understanding how you build brands um, and how you connect with people, how you build communities. Um, it was super formative for me. Like I learned everything that I've put into business with all my businesses since then. I learned in that couple of years at that agency. In terms of branding? In terms of branding, in terms of building community, um, in terms of being entrepreneurial, in terms of having ideas and, and being bold enough to put them out into the world um, and then how to bring ideas to life. Uh, but I, I quickly learned, I was probably there for three or four years. I learned that I didn't really want to work in an advertising agency. I didn't really want to sell bottles of fizzy drink to people for the rest of my life. Well, you didn't want to work for other people. I didn't want to work for other, other people. You didn't want to work for clients. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so then I left. I think it's important just to just t- take a little pause here around this branding concept or the, the skill of branding. And you said something interesting, bringing things to life. This is a, during a period when there's no Instagram and that's right. Facebook might have just kicked off. It might have been, but uh, yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. none of this sort of digital mediums and, and or digital, digital social marketing. Um, what did you learn that in terms of, say, building content around a brand? Yeah, I worked in a team called Special Projects, which kind of straddled a whole bunch of different things. Um, and we were really tasked with bringing to life what was at the time kind of non-traditional advertising ideas. So like you said, social media didn't exist then and it was kind of this little period where the world was coming out of big mainstream one-way media you know tv ads and billboards and starting to go into experiential marketing so building event properties and then laddering into social media 
so the team that I worked for was was called Special Projects, and it was everything that wasn't traditional media at the time. Um, so I got a lot of experience in in understanding new media at that time, right? Um, which was about how do you build an idea that lives in the world that, that doesn't just live in a TV ad or a billboard that people can interact with, whether that's an event property or some kind of um, rallying campaign for a community, and then getting that idea out into the world through a whole bunch of different media channels and getting people to participate in that idea and talk about that idea and share it and getting it on to um, the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald. Yeah, so the objective was to make this such a good idea or such an interesting idea or novel idea um, that someone in the mainstream media would pick it up and put it sort of in program, in other words, in the article. That's right. Front page of a Fin Review or front page of the Sydney Morning Herald or they put it on a current affair because it's a new thing they saw, which is sort of quite effective when it comes to um, advertising and or more importantly marketing um, because it's not sort of paid ads. That's right. Because paid ads are sort of like, yeah, okay, I know what you're trying to do, you're trying to sell me something. That's right. People Whereas smell them a, yeah, a to, mile away. And they, they sort of work, don't get me wrong, but like yep. it's not as effective as in program. Um, so you're in the middle of a current affair, discovers some client of yours because you've held some event, invited all the media there, and they thought this is novel enough and this is good content for us. So it's about what's good content for them. That's right. And, and their audience. That's right. It's sort of, sort of interesting, which, by the way, is what sort of social media does today anyway, just as the platform's different. It's digital, that's the only difference. Anyway, so during this period, um, you sort of cut your teeth on watching these creatives. I mean, did you just sort of sit there in a little room and, you know, bing, a bright idea is coming <laughs> to your brain, oh, yeah, I've done it all, you're in the middle of the night, you wake up and you've got this great idea, or, did, or how did you do, how did you yeah. collaborate? How does, how does that shit work? It, it, it was that, it was that. And, like, I, I wasn't generally responsible for the ideas because I was just a young guy trying to work out how, how to do stuff, right? I was there in the room watching these super smart strategic thinkers build these ideas and then it was my job to go and implement that, execute that. Okay, so post this um, agency environment, why you left because you decided you want to do something for yourself, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there, was a, there was a guy who had a little startup in the building that the agency was in downstairs um, and he was working on an idea at the time. How did you meet him? Just in the lift, like just from being in the building. He was trying to build this surfing technology project. Um, and I'm a surfer, so I think we obviously just gravitated to one another. I remember thinking, "Wow, that's a big idea. That's an awesome idea. I, I want to get involved in that. I, yeah. I want to I want to do that thing." So you were attracted to his idea. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yep. and and then you, you, but I mean, people talk about networking. Um, this is sort of the proper version of networking. Um, you're attracted to an idea, and you go you go for it. Yep. You, you thought I said oh, I'm going to talk to this guy. Yep. And you just and do you build up a little bit of rapport? I mean, like because a lot of people would be terrified to do that. A lot of people I know would never approach someone, even if they are attracted to the idea. Mm. Um, one, they don't identify the fact they are attracted to the idea. They just think, oh, I wouldn't mind getting on further with this individual. But if they can articulate in their mind that I'm attracted to the idea, I'll, I think I can add some value to it. Yep. And um, there's a transaction I'm going to actually go for. I'm going to actually talk to the dude. Did you sort of think that? Um, Did you articulate that at 23 or 24 hour old you were? I can't remember, to be honest. Yeah. What, what what the process was there? Or just one of these open open. open I was just people. like, I love I love this idea. I want to work on it. Yeah, because you, you're just, just one of these open it. dudes who just yeah. Fuck, you, I think so. Just, let's have a crack at it. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of people overthink these things. Mm. But and and I know lots of them are very bright, very talented, highly skilled, um, would be great assets. But they overthink everything. They think, oh yeah, but maybe I'm uh, going too far, or I shouldn't interfere. Or maybe I, it's not my place. 
for those sort of people, as opposed to your style of person, by the way, your style of person is more rare. It's more likely people will overthink. Um, what would you say to them in order just to get close to the dude that you got close to? Yeah, look, I haven't thought about this for a long time, even like this interaction I'm thinking about with this guy, Andrew. Not many people like that, okay? Yeah. But that your personality gets you places because nothing's a problem and you'll, you'll get to meet the dude. Okay. Yep. yep. And uh, that if the dude likes you, which he will, because of the, your style, of personality, then then it's up to skills and all those other things that have to be employed. One one of the things I learned from that project, and we'll get to how that ended, but um, I've learned it multiple times in my life is just have a crack. Like, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. And just whatever, go get another job or do something else. Do you think just, that on reflection, or you or you you think that at the time? I think I learned that from that first experience, probably. Um, I don't know if I was mature enough at the time to understand that. I was quite cocky when I was in my early 20s. I was full of confidence. And so yeah. I just thought, whatever, I can do that. I'll have a crack at it. If I'm the same as you. I don't give a shit, whatever. Um, I'll talk to anybody and do anything. And sometimes, by the way, it doesn't always work out. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't always but, work but out. It doesn't matter. You've got to have a start. I think my thing is if you have something that you want to achieve in your life, whatever that might be, um, you either go for it or you don't. Right, and if you're not willing to put yourself out there and have a crack at it, like stop talking about it. The world's full of people that are gonna do something, um, but there's very few people actually take the first step and go, "I'm just gonna start." Right, um, and you don't have to think about this big, lofty, grandiose endpoint. Yes, it's nice to have that, but don't don't worry about that. Just get started. Just do just the do something today. Just do the first thing. Take the first step. What, take what? your breath and just do something today. That's right. And just. In other words, live in the present. That's right. Because a lot of these people, they, they, they overthink because they're planning. They're planning, well, then what happens? And then what happens? And then, who gives a fuck what happens after? Because you don't know. You'll work it out when you get there. It's like playing a game of chess. You, I can't, you know, at least some people may be able to, but I can't work out your next 10 moves. Mm. I can respond to your your next move. I, I can maybe sort of out try and think that you might make a move after that, but I can't work out your 10 moves. So why do we do that in life? I mean, when we're trying to network or trying to, get up in life when we when we identify something we really like um, or, and or we are attracted to. So there's no point in trying to work out with that other, what, what the next 10 steps are going to be because you never fucking work it out. Your best chance is to know how to respond to the next step. So put yourself in the position where you can do the next step. And that means talk to the dude yep. or the person or the girl or the, whatever it is. You did that, um, then what happened? Yeah, so then I, so the, the, the step for me was quit your job. Right, and and it was a relatively well-paying job for a twenty-something-year-old guy, um, but I just trusted my gut. It was, it was a great idea. I wanted to, to build something with the dude. With the dude, so I quit my job, um, and I came to work for him on his other business, his main business. And at, in the background, we were working together to try and build this idea. Um, and, and the main business was earning money, so it could pay you something. Correct. Yeah, but it wasn't paying the same as you're getting at there. It wasn't paying what I was paying. So you took a, a hit. I took a hit. Yep. Um, but when you're young, like that stuff doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter really. Right. What's 20 grand, 30 grand, whatever, like when you're young. Mm. Um, and then as we started to work together to build out this idea, it then got to the spot where we needed to put some money in. And so this was the first time that I'd put money into a business at, at the time I put my entire life savings in and I borrowed some money off my older sister who had some money as well and, and put a chunk of money into my first ever project, which at the time was crazy scary. I'm sure. But in hindsight, it taught me a massive lesson, which is if you if you want to go after something, put all the chips in the middle of the table because then you've got to make it work, mm. right? So then I stopped working for him, stopped taking a wage, and just 
I had some money left over to live off and the rest went into this startup and we, we went and did it basically. Um, it was a, a surfing technology project. It's kind of a similar to Fitbit a decade before Fitbit became a thing. It was a piece of wearable technology um, designed for surfers. You connected it to your bodies or your wetsuit and it tracked all of your activity in the water. So it told you how many waves you caught, how fast each wave was, how long each wave was, and then mapped that data over Google Maps. This was in 2005 or six, so very rudimentary technology to what we have today. Uh, we went to Taiwan. We, we found a chip manufacturer who could build this thing for us, which was a crazy experience for me to get on a plane and go to Taiwan and go visit a chip manufacturer. Uh, and then we started pitching to the big global surf brands, to, to Billabong, to Quicksilver, to Rip Curl. Um, and they started flying us around the world, got flown out to Huntington Beach, got flown to um, to Hawaii, spent Pipeline Masters at the Billabong House right on Pipeline, hanging out with all my surfing idols as a kid. It was a crazy, crazy experience. Um, and we ended up getting into a bidding war between Quicksilver and, and Billabong for this technology, for the rights to it globally. Um, and we ended up doing a deal with Billabong um, who essentially acquired the rights to the technology. And then the GFC happened, right? And Billabong and Quicksilver and all the big surf brands went into a tailspin. Um, lots of people lost their jobs. All the senior global executive team that were working on this project were made redundant. So the project actually never went to market. We, we did a soft launch at the Pipeline Masters one year um, with a bunch of surfers wearing it in the event broadcast live, but then it got shelved and, and, put in a cupboard somewhere at, at Billabong and has never seen the light of day. So w this trajectory was super rapid. It was like a six month project to, from putting my life savings on the line to being in global board meetings with multi-billion dollar businesses bidding on this thing to it not existing anymore. Sam, when we hit financial crises, whether it be a recession or whatever it is, um, capital expenditure, just the first thing you get canned is capital expenditure. Yeah. But the second thing you get canned is all the um, growth people. So anyone in the organisation who chases growth, um, you know, CEOs, general managers, whatever, they all get asked and uh, they get replaced by CFOs, chief financial officers who are there to tighten the joint up. Yep. And the game is spend no money, maintain all cash flow, nothing goes out the door. All capital projects that are going to help us grow, forget it. And what we're just going to do is just going to be uh, business as usual, um, that is selling wetsuits or whatever it is and just – Batten down the hatches. Trim the sales and see what happens. Yeah. And we'll, we'll go again when it all opens up again. That's the general process when we get recessions or GFCs, which, by the way, we get one every eight or ten years. So – or something happens one every eight or ten years and uh, – that's exactly what will happen in the next round, which will be in three or four years from now. Yep. For sure. And who knows what caused it? We don't, who gives a shit? We don't have to know. But we will get one in three or four years' time. So you, you dusted your dough. <laughs> I, no, I, no, I got my money back because of the, the rights action. They, 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 the paid, action. they paid some money to, to acquire it, to take it off the table for everyone else. So we, we got our money back, um, had a heck of an experience. Yeah, but, but a good experience, though. Amazing, learned so much stuff. Yeah, yeah, because so, they're massive brands. They're, they're big brands. You, you got exposure to big brand guys, like yeah, yeah, and, and at the execution level too. Yep, and, it was amazing. Uh, yeah, and being flying flying around the place, that, that's always pretty good. Because what, what, I, I often wonder, I mean, I, I know the effect it has on me, but what, what do you think global travel do, does when you go to Taiwan? You meet the Taiwanese chip makers, or you go to uh, Huntington Beach, Beach, and you meet the you know, Rip Curl or Neil or whoever it is you're meeting there. Um, what, what, what is the net effect when you think back about it, like in terms of hindsight? What, what do you get mm. out of it? That, that specific experience 
I think taught me that it reinforced what I thought at the start, which is just have a crack at it. What's the worst that can happen? Um, and this is how things, this is how big projects happen in the world. This is how big companies get scaled up is someone just says, I'm just going to give it a crack and you go and do it. Right. Um, that was a learning for me. You just get on a plane, you go to Taiwan and you meet a manufacturer and that's mm. how you set up a supply chain. Have you ever reflected on the, the thought or the feeling, most importantly, the feeling you got from that experience? Mm, it, it was amazing. Yeah. I felt like a rock star. Yeah. Like I really did. Do you feel motivated? I was super motivated. And inspired? I did. It was, yeah. it was massively inspired. Because I think that's one of the big issues right now with global no travel. Yep. Is we, we start to lack inspiration and uh, motivation to me. Yes, yeah, totally. uh, new ideas because you go into this place. You go, wow! Look how the city works. Look how these people operate. Uh, look what they can do. Um, wow! How cool is their factory? Um, you, you know, you get a surprise when you get these factories. They're like massive factories. Everyone's walking around with white masks and white suits on, stuff like that. Um, and you, you go, oh, this is a new world. I like. I never experienced, this, especially a kid coming from the central coast. Yep. Um, you know, the, all of a sudden, you know, it's one thing to move city to the big smoke. My God. You're in Taiwan. Yeah, totally. You know, the, the chip making capital of the world. Yep. You know, like the best technology in the world. Or you're at Huntington or a pipeline. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, what the fuck? I mean, in terms of that industry, yeah. that's that's like Mecca. Yeah, it is. And it you was, get inspired. You do. It was amazing. And, and you're right. Like, seeing other, just seeing new stuff, being exposed to new ideas, new stimulus, it, it does. It motivates you. It inspires you. Travel for me is, is I do it for, to clear my head and to, be inspired, so I, I I don't I won't go on holiday and go and hang out and on on Honolulu beach just to have a rest. You know I'm not fuck that. Like uh, you can have a rest anywhere. I'll go to a place where I'm going to do something new. Like uh, you might go to Tokyo or you might go to wherever. You go to somewhere where you're going to learn something and, yep. get, and get something out of it. Yep. And 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 something that's ex, you get exposed to something that you've been exposed to. I think it's a good way to travel. Um, that's cool. So didn't work. Got inspired. Motivated, great experience, didn't dust your money, got your money back at least. What happened then? Got brutalised, right, because it's a, it's a failure yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. <clears throat> that took me a bit of time to dust myself off, probably yep. six months. Yep. Kind of wandered around Sydney. So you felt a bit smacked about. Thinking, what am I going to do? I'm a failure. What happened to your mate? Sucked. What happened to your, your, your mate, your business partner? Uh, so there was three of us. Yeah. Um, one of them had just sold a, a tech company, so he, he'd built all the technology. Um, so he was kind of good because he'd, he'd made some cash. Uh, and, and the other guy, I think, went back to his other his other business that he had. Right. No no real feelings, though? All good? Yeah, like it, it was one of those things of life. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. That stuff happens. So you're wandering around aimlessly in Sydney thinking, thinking, what the fuck? thinking about yeah. what I'm going to do. Uh, and one of my best mates at the time who I'd met. Is this in 2008 and 2009? Yeah, this would have been about then, I guess. Yep. yep. Um, one of my one of my best mates at the time who I'd met at that the agency that I'd come from before he and I had been talking about wanting to start something, a business built around, you know, a really strong brand proposition. And so we started thinking about um, just what categories you could go into and disrupt and build a really interesting brand. Uh, and then one night we were out for dinner and we walked into a bottle shop to get a bottle of wine for dinner. And we had one of those aha moments where we looked at a big wall of wine in a bottle shop. Um, and this was a decade ago. And the category was just the same. Every every single wine brand was talking about the same stuff. It was about awards. It was about heritage. It was about provenance. There was nothing interesting or exciting going on in the wine world. <clears throat> and as young guys who who wanted to drink some wine, nothing spoke to us. So we said, let's start a, let's start a wine brand of all things, right? Um, 
And so then we just went and did that. And I put all the money that had gone in the first project that I got back when it went into this next thing. So again, just pushed all the chips to the middle of the table and started a wine brand called Cake Wines. And, and I spent six years building that business. And, and the whole premise of, of the company was to try and introduce a whole new generation of people to wine, take out, take out some of the snobbiness, some of the wankery that, that lives in traditional wine world and make it more inviting and inclusive for a new generation of wine drinkers. So we did a lot of stuff around bringing wine and culture together. So we would do rooftop parties here in Sydney. We'd do laneway parties. We'd do art exhibitions. We'd do- Sort of similar to what you were doing when you were at the agency. Same, exact same yeah, thinking. Yeah, event, event style. And exact did, same did, did you get picked up publicity-wise? We got heaps of publicity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we scaled that business pretty quickly. Did you, was it a white label? I mean, did you get someone else to make the wine and you just- Yeah, so it? we brought in, we had a winemaking team in the Adelaide Hills. Yep. Um, so we had contracts with growers. So we we're purchasing fruit from growers yep. in the Adelaide Hills and McLaren Vale. We had a contract winemaking facility, and then we had our own winemaker who worked for us, right. so, made the wines. Yep, yep, yeah. So you actually produced the wine yourself. We yeah. were producing wines. Yep. Um, and we had a, a national distribution team. We actually had a cellar door here in Redfern for a couple of years. Um, yeah, it was an awesome, fun, amazing business. Um, but also a young man's game, kind of doing events and running hospitality venues and traveling around the country slinging wine. Yeah. It's a heavy um, sort of hand-to-hand -hand combat with, um, you know, the pub owners and the bar owners and the restaurant owners and blah, blah, blah. And know, the big brands. And the big brands, all of whom own most of the um, the, uh, the uh, liquor stores too. So you're trying to get shelf space and you want to get in a shelf space where people can see you. It's a tough game. Yeah, totally. The booze game in general, like no matter what category yeah, of booze yeah. you're in, booze is, booze is hard work. Yeah, bloody oath. So what happened in this business? I, I learned a lot in that business though because I learned how to be a door-to-door -door salesman. Yeah, well, that's what you're going to be. It's hand-to-hand combat. That's, that's something I've never done before. I call that hand-to-hand -hand combat <laughs> because it, it actually is. Everybody wrestles differently. Every yep. single place you go to, door-to-door, -to, -door, to yep. try and get on their shelf or whatever it is in, in, in the back of the shelf, um, they're different personalities. You just got to wrestle them differently. They're all good. That's right. Different sort of um, loves and hates, and you're trying to actually assess people there and the, there and then on the spot. Did you do that yourself? Yeah, that was me. Yeah. I, I spent probably four years out of that six years being a salesman. Like, and, and there's nothing more unglamorous yeah. than going into a shitty it little mum and dad bottle shop in the Tight. out the back of nowhere. You think, oh, the fuck, are we going to do? That, that you're going to sell six bottles of wine to? Yeah, what are these guys going to be like? Are they going to fuck me around? Are they going to be nice? Are they going to be unnice? Um, how am I feeling today? That's right. Get up, have a coffee. Oh, fuck. Staying in a motel. Yep. Some shit motel right. somewhere. Yep. Yeah, I can see it. And you're Eating shit food. Renting a car. That's right. Everything on the string of an the smell yeah. of an oily rag. And you're stopping at a service station and you're buying a Kit Kat yep. and a bag of chips. That's your lunch. Yep. And you're drinking, a, trying to drink water, but you think, fuck that, I'll drink uh, something else. Oh, Kombucha God. wasn't around then either. So, yeah. Flashbacks, Mark. Yeah, Flashbacks. Yeah. But it's actually good grounding. It's it's hard-nosed hustle. It's know. it's amazing. I would yeah. recommend to anyone, if you want to do be an entrepreneur, yeah. go get a job in the sales. Well, go on, it, Learn how to it, do that. Take a job selling hair clips in chemists out in the bush. That's right. Get them to put their your hair clip brand up. Yep. Like, you know, the little rack that you're putting. Like imagine some of those people, that I, I really take my hat off to them, but it is a great way to learn the hustle. It is. I, I fucking love it. Yep. What happened to that business? Sell it? Uh, yeah, so my, my business partner, who was one of my best mates at the time, we ended up having a falling out. Um, which is a massive regret in my life. Don't go into business with your best mates. Yep. Not worth it. Um, and I got to the point where I just wanted to get out. Um, so I ended up selling my share of the business um, to him and another investor. Uh, and I left that business in 2017. Right. 
packed up my life, put some money in the bank, finally, after back-to-back two startup. Yep. I was with my now wife. She came through that six-year journey. And at the end, I convinced her to pack up our lives and go on a crazy once-in-a-lifetime trip to the most remote parts of the world we could get to. And we essentially lived in a tent for the better part of 18 months. And that is where I came up with this idea for Zeroco. Where'd you go? We, we went to some crazy places. We, we, we trekked along the border of Tajikistan and Afghanistan for about a month. Trekking dangerous shit? Uh, there were some moments that were pretty dangerous, yeah, in hindsight. Um, I never felt unsafe. Um, spent a month in Iran. Spent a lot of time in Kurdish villages right on the border with Iraq, which was quite an interesting thing. Uh, I went to North Korea, uh, which How was. How you get in there? Can, <laughs> can you get North Korea? You can go to North Korea. I didn't know that. You can. You have to go on a government-sanctioned tour. Right. So you only get to see what they want you to see. Um, but you oh, can, okay, yeah, yeah. They 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 hold your hand. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But you can go. You can go to North Korea. What what what, what did you see there? Just, I mean, I've got no idea about the joint. Yeah, yeah. It, it was the craziest place I've ever been in my life, and you just can't comprehend what it's like until you go there. Every single moment that you are there is curated and some really weird stuff happens that you can't even begin to fathom why they curated that. So one of the, one of the crazy experiences or just like a, a little throwaway thing that we saw every day, the, there's, a, there's an island in a lake in the middle of Pyongyang, the capital, where the tourists go to stay so they can, you can't get away yeah, yeah. at night. Can't escape, yeah. <laughs> you can't escape. And there's a bridge that goes out to the island and there's a strip of grass probably a metre wide on either side of the um, road. And every morning there were ladies with scissors cutting the grass with scissors. You're joking. As the bus would drive past. Um, and so you just think, what the fuck is that yeah, about? Totally. Like, why do they think to do that? What are they trying to... They've done yeah, that for a point? reason. What's, what's the point of that, of that thing? So there were just moments like that every day of complete weirdness. Yeah, it's random. Completely random, unrational. You just can't even try to work out what they were doing. Well, what are the, some of the things that stick in your mind apart from that one? One of, the, one of the amazing things was that people everywhere were lovely to us. We, we, there was only probably one or two times that we felt unsafe in the entire trip. Um, one of those was crossing over the border from Iran into Armenia that was a pretty dodgy border crossing. There were some pretty dodgy characters. But out, outside of little pockets of that, people were overwhelmingly hospitable to us and places where you don't expect people to be hospitable because what you see in the mainstream media were the most. Like Iranians are the friendliest people on the planet. I've, I've never experienced hospitality like I have in Iran. I've been to 50-something countries now and they are on a whole nother level of hospitality. We, we hardly paid for anything for the month we were in the country. People would come up to us in the street and in broken English say, you're coming to stay at my house tonight. And, and they would force you to go and stay at their house and they'd give up their bed and they'd feed you. And then the next day you'd tell them, oh, we're going to the next city, Shiraz. Oh, my cousin's uncle's sister lives there. She'll come and meet you. And then they put you up at their house. Um, the, the Iranians are an incredible Unbelievably hospitable. culture of people. Amazing. That's cool. And, and can I, out of that 18-month ex- experience, what motivated you to start up Zeroco? Yeah, so I I had a hunch that on this trip I'd probably have a moment of clarity or inspiration or whatever and I'd come up with an idea. Um, but I didn't know what it was and I wasn't going there specifically for that outcome. I just wanted to get out into wilderness and have an amazing time trekking to some of the most remote places I could get to and push 
my comfort zone into, you know, places I get, get me outside my comfort zone basically. Uh, and one of the things that I started to really realize was how much plastic waste there is. It's scary, isn't it? Super scary. And like when you go to big population centers, you go to China, you go to India, you go to Indonesia, you expect to see plastic and you do see plastic because there's a hundred million people living yep. on top of one another with no waste infrastructure. Yep. But when you go out into proper wilderness and you're walking for weeks at a time without yes. seeing other humans and you see stuff, yeah, it, it really started to get to me. The, the place that it got to me the most was we went to um, Kamchatka, which is a peninsula in the far northeast of Russia up near Alaska. You can't get there by land from Russia. It's completely cut off. It's the world's most volcanic region. There's more volcanoes on this peninsula than anywhere else on the planet. There's no roads. There's no infrastructure. You have to get around in these big old ex- Soviet um, military trucks called Kamazas. They're like eight wheel trucks with wheels this high. Um, Cause you literally, as soon as you get out of the, the city that you fly into, there's no roads. So you are driving literally across glaciers and across volcanic fields and along beaches. And there was this section of that trip where we spent two days just driving along this deserted beach in the middle of nowhere. And the beach was just covered in plastic. That's weird, eh? It was crazy. And you don't see, there's no one swimming or surfing or no boats or ships. No one even lives there. Yeah. There's no humans around. Um, and so I just really started to think about That the messes scale. your head up a bit, doesn't it? Massively. It massively messed with my head because there shouldn't be plastic in these places because there's no people. Um, so I basically spent probably the last six months of this trip just walking around the wilderness thinking very deeply about plastic uh, and the problem and what a potential solution could be. And anytime I got into internet range, I would be downloading papers and just trying to read as much as I could and get my head around um, the problem and what people are doing out there in the world at the moment. And it was really fortuitous to be honest with you, because usually when you are thinking about a business idea, I don't know, in my previous experiences, I never had a six month block with nothing else to distract me, just to think really, really deeply about a problem which is what I did. So when I came back to Australia, I had a really well thought out, well articulated strategy for what I was going to do, which enabled me to do it quickly and scale it quite quickly. That's probably a good place for us to jump off in the second part. Wanted to go to the break, we'll come straight back and um, we'll talk about zero. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Coming back from the 
break. We're here with Mike Smith from Zeroco, the founder of Zeroco. Um, we've just gone through his journey. I mean, his amazing journey that he had, particularly, I mean, I love that 18-month sabbatical, which turned into a business idea. Um, and of all things, it's, you know, through observation. It's amazing. When you have a time to breathe when you're on a holiday or you're on a, a trek like you were in your case and um, you've got nothing else to do but breathe, mm. you know, there's nothing to do except think and breathe. Yep. And then you get confronted by a problem and you start to think and breathe and concentrate on the problem. You come up, you've come up with this idea about plastic. How would you come up with a solution and what is the solution? Yeah, so I kind of thought about it um, at a kind of macro level to begin with. I didn't go I – was, I was kind of category agnostic when I was thinking about how I was going to solve this problem and it really laddered off kind of two insights, right, which is to solve the plastic problem globally, there's two things we have to do. First of all, we need to stop using single-use plastic. We need to stop making more plastic and putting it into the world, using it, buying it from the supermarket, using it for a couple of weeks and chucking it in the bin. We've got to stop doing that because as long as there's more plastic coming in, we're just going to be the, – the mountain of plastic is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's fucking dumb when you think about it. Like, it's so dumb. It's just <laughs> – like we're the problem, consumers, and to be honest with you, part of it, because um, we allow this to happen. We sponsor it. You know, I'm one of them. I mean, more recently, I, I, I've become really conscious of it. Um, but I just don't understand why people give you, for example, a, like I might go to the gym, get a protein shake, and they give me, they give it to me in a plastic cup, a big plastic cup, um, and then they don't recycle the plastic cup. I walk out with it, then I just fucking throw it away. Yep. And I thought to myself, well, I take it home, wash it, and bring it back to make a point, but I don't. Um, and now I don't buy the I don't buy the protein shake because. And I said, and why don't you just get to get a paper cup or something, mm. or, or give me give all of us a, you know, like a container or something, and we just keep it. I'll keep it in my bag. I'll give it to you to fill it up. Yep. But I haven't quite got to that point myself of actually forcing the issue. Mm. And I could easily do it. Um, I just don't understand it. I just do people not think about this shit, or what is it? What is it laziness? What is it? It's convenience. Yeah, but what? Yeah, but that's uh, sort of like lazy convenience. And, and look, I think. The, it's inconvenient from my point of view. It is. And, and look, it's partly us as people, but it's also partly companies, right? Yeah, no, the vendor is a problem. So I, I was watching your show last night, knowing that you were coming on today, and it was, at the, and it was about this issue. I, I soon recall that 70% of all single-use plastics are produced by 20 companies in the world. Yep. That's it. Yep. And Australia is one of the worst. Worst per capita. One of the worst, yeah. Number one in the world. Yeah, Number, per, uh, per capita. Unbelievable. I got a shock. I went Australia, UK, and US. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not. What the fuck? Fifty nine kilos of plastic single use plastic per person in Australia. That's ridiculous. It's it's pretty crazy. It's really crazy. Yeah. I. I yeah. I mean, I just anyway. So sorry. Go on. Sorry. So so job number one, stop using single use plastic. We've got to work out a way to do that. And then job number two is we've got to work out a way to deal with all of the plastic that's made its way into the natural environment and get it out of there, right? Um, job number one's relatively easy, and we'll get to that, how to solve problem number one. P problem number two is difficult because plastic... Well, job number one's about behaviour change. And, and supply chain change. Well, so, and change the behaviour of the suppliers. So, yeah. But they're going to say it every time I sell, every time there's a single-use plastic, I get paid for the next one. So I get... It's in their interest, isn't it? Yeah. To sell 10,000 instead, instead of selling one that gets used 10,000 that, times. That's right. That's right. So but when I first started thinking about the first problem of, okay, how do you stop single-use plastic? I just straight away thought back to the milkman, right? We, we had this model 
not that long ago, a generation ago. I was one of them. I used to collect the bottles, um, the, the empty bottles. Yep. And milkman the money. Would, milkman would come to your door, yeah. drop off some bottles. Yeah. The next day he'd come back and pick up the empty ones, yeah. take them back to the dairy, yeah. clean them, yeah. and refill them. That was me. I did the job. And yeah. I actually, I'll go one step further with it. We didn't even have a car. We had a horse. Had a big draft yeah, right. horse. His Amazing. name was Sam. And uh, Sam, I used to do it at, I was at school, but I used to do it at, I used to start at midnight. And Sam, um, I, I have a, a, a really clear vision, right? The bloke I worked for, his name was Lindsay. He was my next door neighbour. And uh, he was, I was a kid, he was an older guy. And I used to go and help him on weekends and Friday nights and Saturdays sometimes. But Friday nights, Saturdays used to collect the money. But Friday nights was the delivery. We used to get this draft horse. And Sam, I have this vision or a memory of the draft. In the middle of winter, pitch black, on our, we used to do it around Bexley. And Lindsay used to stop at this house and he used to go and have a few whiskeys. I was a kid, so I didn't was allowed. And I used to have to see there was Sam the horse just waiting for Lindsay to come out. Sam knew exactly what house to stop at where he knew every – the horse knew every house where to stop. So we didn't always deliver milk at every house. Yep. He'd stop every second or third house. He knew exactly the route. And uh, and when we were at outside this house that we used to stop off and Lindsay used to go and have a few whiskeys with his mate um, and I used to sit there in the freezing fucking cold. I have a clear memory of Sam – the horse, draft horse, just me and him, pitch black, middle of the night, no fucking people around. And I used to see steam coming out of the, the draft horse's nostrils. I, I remember so clearly in the middle of winter. Um, and I used to sit there freezing to fucking death and uh, thinking, how long was Lindsay going to be? And once he invited me in and he said, would you like one of these? I said, no, no thanks. Like, I didn't even know <laughs> whiskey. I never had whiskey. That, I was like 15 or something. I had no, like whiskey was a bit foreign to me. A beer, I might have had a beer, but no whiskey. And uh, yeah, yeah, and and we used to do that. We used to collect the bottles. I used to, I have to go, I go run down the side there. And there was always a fucking cat or a dog there. Or I used to think there was that or a spider web. I used to have to put my hand around the side to get the money. No credit cards. <laughs> there was money laying around there. Yep. And uh, I get the money was in a little hidey hole. Every house had a little little hidey spot. And I used to pick the. There was a crate. We used to have like a, a sort of a steel crate with plastic coating around the, the crate. And then there was for six bottles, and the bottles were a pint each. Yep. Um, and you pick the you get the empty one up, and you you uh, you take one in full, and you replace the full one with the empty one. Take it back in. That's right. That was cool. Trip down memory lane there. Yeah. Back in the good old days. Yeah. And that's but that worked. It worked, right? So when I first started thinking about the first problem, stopping single use plastic, I just thought we've already worked it out. People, let's single use bottles. It's been done before. Yeah. Let's just we just got to build a machine to clean stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that that was. In my mind, really easy. We'll, we'll get to that. Or build bottles that can be cleaned. That's right. Yeah. Or both. Yeah. Um, the second part, which is working out how do you get plastic out of the ocean at scale. That's a big deal. Is challenging because um, it's no individual government's responsibility. Like the plastic that's out in international waters, who's going to fund that to get that cleaned up? Um, charities don't have the scale to do that. So, So my approach was... The only way that's ever going to get done is if you can build a market-based mechanism um, where you can monetize the collection of plastic and give it productive use. Um, so I came back to Australia and said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a business that does those two things, that stops single-use plastic and funds large-scale ocean cleanups. Came back to Australia with that as the economic model I was going to explore and I was agnostic about what product I was going to do that with. Then I went and started spending a very uncomfortable amount of time in supermarkets, following people around, watching how they were shopping, being a creep a little bit, to be honest with you. It was market research. Market research. Um, and I found myself spending more and more time 
in the last three aisles of the supermarket, which is where the cleaning and personal care stuff lives. Um, shampoo, body wash, hand wash, laundry liquid, dishwashing detergent. Uh, those three aisles are floor to ceiling, wall to wall, single use plastic, right? Um, and that's when I started thinking, okay, there's something here cause it's a big, massive category and it's pretty unsexy, right? And I'd learned from my last business, Cake Wines, about going in and disrupting a big, boring industry that has had no innovation for a decade or more. And that's what home cleaning and personal care has been for 50 years, right? OMO has been OMO since my grandmother used OMO. It hasn't changed. The Earth right? brand sort of tried to change it up a little bit. They've, they've tried to do some stuff. It looks yeah. a bit better. A little bit better. I feel better, but it's single, still single, single use. Still single use. Yeah. Um, so then I said, okay, great. I'm going to go and launch a personal care and home cleaning company that's going to make amazing planet-friendly products that you use every day in your house, and I'm going to work out a way to deliver it direct to Aussie homes minus all the single-use plastic in packaging that is made from plastic pulled out of the ocean. And you make the, and you make the ingredients as well. You make the we've, stuff that goes inside. We've got a contract manufacturer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we basically the journey was once we had the idea, we said, okay, let's go and let's go and do this. Um, I knew this was going to be a pretty capital-intensive business to get off the ground, so we went and did a Kickstarter campaign. Um, I'd never run a Kickstarter campaign before. Complete novice at it, uh, but I just believed that the time was right for an idea like this. And I and I talked to lots and lots of people about this from all walks of life, like from my grandmother to mates of mine in Sydney, right? Um, and everybody said the same thing, which is it, it is silly how much plastic we put in our bin every every week at home. I'm, I'm, I'd be open to a solution. Um, so we built a shitty little landing page that I built myself for 200 bucks and we started running some Facebook ads, driving traffic to the website, basically saying, hey, I've got this idea. I don't know how I'm going to do it just yet, but are you interested? Um, and we had like 15,000 Aussies sign up to our mailing list in about a month. It was, it was really overwhelming. And it just gave me a heap of confidence right at the start of the project that there was a market out there for this and people wanted to be part of the solution. So then we said, okay, let's go and do a Kickstarter campaign to try and raise some money to help us fund this thing. I'd put my life savings back in at this point again. So it was the third time I'd pushed all the chips back into the middle of the table. Um, and I had a goal to try and raise $250,000. Um, and we did that in about a day and a half and we went on to raise $750,000, Wow! which I believe at least at the time it was, the, it was the most funded Kickstarter project in Australian history, selling only to Australians. There were some people who'd raised more money Flow doing, Hive. doing stuff globally. Well, I think Flow Hive. Flow Hive did yeah, more. Yeah. 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 But this well, was the, that was a long time before you though. That's right. Yeah. This was the biggest one only selling to Australians. Mm. We had seven and a half thousand Aussies say, yeah, I'm in, let's do this, which was amazing, right? It was so amazing. And it was people from all walks of life. It was 70-year-olds from Ballarat. It was inner-city hipsters from Redfern. It was hippies from Byron Bay. It was tradies from Perth. It was everyone. We, we sold product to all demographics in all markets around Australia, um, which just gave, it was a second burst of confidence and, and shot in the arm that we're onto something here. Um, so that gave us some money to go and, get the business started. So we hired some industrial chemists. We started formulating all of our products. And, and the brief to the formulators was, we need to make products that perform as well, if not better than the big market leading brands that you get. You're talking about the stuff inside the- Stuff inside. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we need to do that at a price that's comparable to, to the market leader. So for example, um, Dynamo Professional is rated the number one laundry liquid 
in Australia at the supermarket by the Choice website. So we got bottles of Dynamo and we sent it to our formulators and we said, you got to beat that um, without using any nasty ingredients. So there's no palm oil, there's no petrochemicals, there's no um, SLS, SLES. Um, they're all plant-based formulas. We said, we want you to make a really good laundry liquid, for example, using really good natural ingredients. And we didn't we didn't say you're done, the job is done until we could beat or match the market leading brand. So we sent all of our formulas off to independent laboratories and we had to do iteration after iteration after iteration until we could match the best brands. So then we knew we had a really awesome product. Uh, it was then time to build the supply chain. And and me in my youthful naivety thought this would be super easy, right? <laughs> to, to make a reusable um, pouch and a, and a reusable bottle. Did you um, have in your your mind the pouch and the bottle? Did you know what you want to look like, or how'd you work that out? We, I, I was so originally. So this is our this is a body wash bottle. How do you ship something from our factory to a customer, get them to use it, then ship it back in the most environmentally friendly way and the most cost efficient? Ship way? back when they're finished with it. That's right. Yeah. So the original model was we'll, we'll ship you this full. You'll use it. You'll ship it back to us. But that means shipping a, a big empty bottle. And if you have got ten of these, you, it's a volume. Yeah. It's a big carbon footprint. It's a lot of cost. So then I started thinking about, okay, how do you, how can we ship something to a customer that's big when it's full and then flat packed when it comes back? It's kind of the reverse Ikea model, right? Um, so then we started exploring pouches, right? Which, which serve that purpose. It's full when it's, it's big, when it's full, when it's empty, it's flat. Uh, so then we, we took it one step further and said, we don't want to make pouches out of new plastic, even if they're getting shipped back and forth and refilled over and over and over again. What if we could make this out of recycled plastic to begin with? Um, so then we went down a gigantic rabbit hole of trying to work out how to make a pouch from recycled material. No one had ever done it anywhere in the world. We spoke to hundreds and hundreds of suppliers. We finally found an Australian company who agreed to work with us on this. Took us months and months and months of testing. And what we've been able to do is build a pouch that's at the moment made from 50% recycled plastic. First time it's ever been done in the world. Um, so the way the business model works is, so this is a, a one liter bottle of multi, uh, pouch and multi-purpose cleaner, 500 mil multi-purpose cleaner bottle. When you sign up to Xerico, in your first box, you get a set of what we call forever bottles. These are made from plastic we pulled out of the ocean. You keep this at your house and you fill it up with this. Right. You then send this back to us in a postage paid return envelope. We then clean and sanitize this pouch, fill it up, send it out again. So that's how the model solves both problems. This stops single-use plastic and this funds large-scale ocean cleanups. Right. Um, so we went down a huge rabbit hole to build a pouch from recycled material. So does every one of the containers have a pouch? Every one of the containers has its own pouch. Right. right. Yep. Um, and you can buy as many pouches as you want to. You can buy one, you can buy 10, you can buy yep. whatever you want. Yep. Um, yep. We send you a postage paid return envelope. So doesn't yep. we cover the cost of shipping back to us and then we clean them and, and send them back out again. Um, and to, what has it worked in terms of pricing, cost, costing and margins and stuff like that? So it is um, – it is cost comparable with what you would pay at the supermarket. To buy, say, but that's multi-purpose. Multi-purpose cleaner. Um, our hand wash costs the same as, thank you. Right. Okay. Um, our laundry liquid costs the same as Dynamo. Right. Um, it's all basically when you price. say cost, you, you sell it to me for the same price. Same price. And in terms of your cost, sir, and your margin. Yeah, so the, the, the thing that we've been able to do is because we've gone direct to the customer, we've cut out yeah, yeah, 30%. distributor. So and there's at least 30% cost. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We, there's extra money in our pocket yeah, to enable us to fund. So if you're doing it through 
I don't know, one of the big Woolworths or, or, or IGO or some of that. Yeah, you got to pay them their marketing cost, the shelf cost. They want fifty percent margin. Fifty percent, yeah. Okay, yeah. so which means you're saving fifty percent. Okay, because you're doing all direct. That's right. Yeah, direct. Okay, that's cool. Direct that's to cool. customer. So you yep. got. Uh, I can see the pink one there. And, yeah. So uh, we've got dishwashing liquid. There's ten products in the range. Yep. So the idea was from day one, we want to have as many products as possible to make it as convenient for a family to sign up. Yep. Get as much of your stuff. From us, and how do you um, engage them as a, the families, whoever it is, a, as a community? I mean, what are you doing as in terms of community engagement? Because it's one thing for them to transact with you, get it? Yep. What about community engagement though? How, how do you bring them on the on the journey along with the story and all that? Sort yeah, of stuff? totally. So, look, one of the things that we've we've done, we've spent a lot of time focusing on is taking people on the journey of building this business. So everything has been documented. There's been so many blogs written and videos and emails out to our customers at every single stage of this journey, explaining exactly what we are doing. Um, and people have really resonated with that. We've got 30,000 customers that we've signed up in six months now. Um, and so you've only been going for not even six months, six we, months. We officially launched in November of last year. We started shipping products. Right. Yeah, We've shipped over 300,000 pouches out to 30,000 homes now. That's fantastic. Um, which is amazing. And, and we've been blown away by the just the growth of this thing and the support that we are getting. Um, and back to the community engagement thing, one of the things we've really done a lot of effort on is taking people on the journey around the ocean cleanup stuff that we've been doing. So straight after our Kickstarter campaign, we jumped on a plane. This was pre-COVID. We went to Indonesia um, and we pulled 500,000 water bottles worth of plastic out of the Java Sea. We recycled that plastic and we turned them into our first generation for, you, forever how bottles. How the fuck do you do that? Like, I mean, you hire a ship or something, what do you do? Uh, so we, we partnered with a company um, that does ocean cleanup. So one of the good things about the problem with ocean waste now is there's lots of not-for-profits and lots of companies around the world that are doing cleanup projects now. So we were able to tap into an existing supply chain um, and we documented this entire process. And, and I was going there to see for myself, what does this process look like? So what are we doing? Like a, a barge or something? We're, we're talking about fishermen in rickety little boats that fish in the morning and in the afternoon go out and collect plastic. Oh, wow. So we got on these rickety boats with these Indonesian fishermen and we went out and we just saw kilometres and kilometres and kilometres of, of I, rubbish. I, 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 I don't know if that's up on your pages, on your social yep. media, but like I have to say like I have experienced this. And uh, I was in um, Malaysia, but not far from Thailand. So I was on the Malaysian coast looking at Thailand, the bottom of Thailand. And um, I was staying on an island there and, um, and I was seeing a really swanky sort of hotel, which had a beachfront. The next door to it was like nothing. It was just vacant. And on the other side it was vacant. You walk out of the hotel, you walk down the beach, beautiful, nice, clean beach, beautiful and clean. You walk to the edge of where the I know where this story goes. Where the premises <laughs> stop, where their border is, whatever you call it, their, their, where, their, yeah, where their border is, not their border, their, uh, their edge the property of property boundary. Their, their property boundary. And it's fucking like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm serious, I'm not joking. It would have been three foot, nearly a metre high and maybe six, seven metres deep on the shoreline of plastic bottles and shit, plastic shit. There's just yep. fucking piles of it. Yep. And what this particular hotel did is they would walk around and clean up their thing every day, every day. They'd get, before I got up, yep. they'd go, there'd be 20, 30 people there just getting rid of all this shit. Yep. And they told me, and I, I, I killed me, and I, I really ruined my holiday, to be honest with you, seeing all this. But they said to me, it all floats down from Thailand on the tide. Like, because mm. people, they just, they're blaming Thailand, of course. But um, they, they said to me that people just dumped their fucking plastic there and it all goes into the sea. Yep. And it all just comes across in the tide. 
Yeah. You could see Thailand from this particular place. So I, I thought, what the fuck? This must be ultra Asia. It's crazy. A garbage truck of plastic goes into the ocean every minute worldwide. <laughs> 21 million tonnes a year. It's projected what is to it, get What do they think? They must be off their head. But don't they understand what they're doing? Well, yeah. well it's, this is one of the things I've learned on this project in the year and a half I've been working on it. It's not just overseas. We, we think we've solved the problem in Australia. We have not solved the problem at all. Less than 15% of the plastic you put in your yellow bin at home gets recycled. 85% of the plastic that we all think is being recycled in Australia by putting it in the yellow bin goes to landfill. At least it goes land. It doesn't get thrown in the fucking beach. <laughs> so that's again what you think, right? That's yeah. what I thought. So we, over the last six months, we've been working on a project to bring our ocean cleanups home to Australia because we've gone up to the Great Barrier Reef and we've seen the problem up there. Gets even worse the further north you get. Um, and so we've been planning out a bunch of ocean cleanups in Australia. We did our first one two weeks ago. We set a world record by doing the world's longest solo underwater ocean cleanup. We had one of our customers, a mate of ours, Dean, Dean Crop, was in a scuba outfit on the bottom of Sydney Harbour for 24 hours straight, and he pulled 200 kilos of waste off the bottom of Sydney Harbour. Wow. One guy in 24 hours, just by himself, off the bottom of Sydney Harbour. So we, we still have a massive problem in Australia. It's not as big as some parts of Asia where they don't have at least garbage trucks that come and get it and take it and put it in a hole in the ground. But we've got a massive problem here in Australia as well. Yeah. So now we're doing all our ocean cleanups in Australia. We're taking plastic out of Sydney Harbour. We're about to do another one on Fraser Island. We've taken some stuff off the Great Barrier Reef, processing that in Australia and turning it into our second generation forever bottles, which we're making in Australia now. That'll be pretty cool too. I mean, it looks like a duck actually. It's, um, just in terms of the design. <laughs> yep. Just in terms of the design, um, yes. how did you go about these things? Uh, so one of the things from day one that, that, we, or that I said to myself is, if we're going to have a scalable impact on this plastic problem, this needs to be a mainstream proposition. So you have to have amazing products that work as well as the supermarket. It needs to be the same price as the supermarket. And it has to look amazing, right? Because um, I want this hand body wash bottle to live at your place forever. Mm. I want your kids to inherit it from you, mm. right? Um, my parents have got a, a beetroot container, a Tupperware beetroot container that's been in my fridge, my parents' fridge, since I was a kid. And when my parents pass away, my sister and I will have a debate about who inherits the beetroot Tupperware container, right? I want these things to be the same generational objects that, that have emotional connection to them that you pass on to your children. Where do you think you can go with this? So, so okay, I, I get this is great. I love this. Yep. So what's your next iteration? So we've got, there's 10 products in the range right now. Um, we're about to launch five, four or five new products. So we'll be, we'll be releasing a shampoo, a conditioner, a deodorant, a toothpaste, and potentially a mouthwash in the months ahead. Um, and then we will continue to iterate out into other product categories within personal care and home cleaning. Uh, and then we are planning on taking this thing global. Um, it is a big global problem. We've developed a solution to this problem that we have proven is scalable. Um, we've got to 30,000 customers in, in six months um, where we were profitable in our third month of business. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to try and launch this thing internationally next year. Have you been to the market in terms of what, what's your uh, investor uh, or your capital raising sort of appetite? Yeah, so we've, we've done two raises now. Um, we've raised about five million bucks. In total now? So far? Yep. What, what, what are the sort of things you need to put in place to get that done? Yeah, totally. So look, when I first had this idea, um, before I did the, the crowdfunding campaign, I went and pitched this idea to 
every single person I could get to, to every VC fund, every private equity, um, all the incubators, all of the impact investment groups. And every single person said no to me. I must've got a hundred no's. Um, but I just knew that there was something here. So I just kept persevering through the no's after no, after no, after no. And I finally came across a guy who was said, I got the first yes, right? And that's always the case with everything in life. You get a hundred no's, you get one yes, and then the rest of them come. Someone once said to me really, really something quite interesting. Every time you get a no, you know you're getting closer to the next year, to a yes. Yeah, I like that. And that's a good way of looking at it. Yep. You just, it's a bit like having hot, dry days and you need rain. You just know you know, every time, every dry day that just goes past, you're getting one closer to the day it's going to rain. Yep. And that's a good way of looking at this. Mm, totally. So I think to your question, what, what do you have to do? The first thing is you just have to have perseverance, right? Because you're going to get a heap of no's. And hopefully you learn something from your pitch from every no and you tweak it and, and you iterate it until you get you get to your yes, right? Um, so that's the first thing you have to you have to do. I think the second thing is you need to have a really robust plan to show investors exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and make sure that you understand, you explain to them how much you understand about the problem. Um, so my first iteration um, probably was not enough detail as, as possible. There's... There's a bit of a myth out there in, in funding land that you can only, you should only send a 10-page investment doc, right? 10 slides is, is you're done. I sent a 95-page document. I sent around 10 slides, got no's. So I went, sat down and wrote the whole thing, everything that I'd thought about how to build this business. And I started sending out 95-page slide decks to, to investors and I started getting yeses. <clears throat> um, so that was interesting. But yes to the meeting. Yes to the meeting and then yes to in, yes investing. to investments. Um, so maybe that's another lesson there, like buck the trends. That the ten slide investor deck didn't work for me. Not a ninety five slide when, one when, did. So you've only been going for six months. Yep. So what point did you start to look for investors? So I put a hundred thousand dollars of my own money in on day one. That ran out pretty quickly because I hired some people. And did you raise the seven fifty on your crowdfunding. Uh, so I went out to investors before then. Before then. Before the crowdfunding, um, got a bunch of no's. Uh, I, I then got introduced to a guy called Rob Chapman, who's the ex-CEO of St. George Bank. Um, he's an Adelaide guy. I got introduced to him through some people in the wine industry. Um, he was one of the early investors in Vino Mofo, and I had a relationship with those guys through the wine business. And he was the first guy that said, yep, I'm in. Um, and so massive um, thank you to Rob Chapman, who was the first believer in this thing. And he was then able to bring in some other people from private equity and, and you know high net worth individuals. And we ended up raising 750 grand um, in that first round. Friends and family participated in that. My, my mum and dad put some money in. My big sister put some money in. Um, I already had 100 grand in at that stage. Then we were able to top that up with some, some high net worth people. Then we went and did the Kickstarter campaign, um, which proved the concept, proved there was a market. And then uh, in about July of last year, we did our second raise in the middle of COVID, that was a massive learning curve, trying to raise money during a global pandemic. Uh, but we were able to bring some some VC funds in there. So um, um, Kim Jackson from Skip Capital, um, which is Scott Farquhar from Atlassian's um, private equity firm, uh, they came in. They were the first ones to write a, a pretty big check um, to, to to back us, which was which was amazing. Um, so yeah, so we've done we've done we did those two rounds, and then we literally just closed another round, probably. A month ago, we raised another $2 million. Um, basically, all of the initial investors went in again and we brought a few other high net worth individuals in. Um, so, yeah, so we've, we've had quite a lot of success. And, and do you think that the, you'll have to go back? 
Um, we, we are planning, the, the big audacious idea here is we, we are planning on handing over ownership of this company to our customers um, because I believe that what we are trying to do is build a people-powered solution to this problem, right? I, I don't believe big business is going to go and solve the plastic problem. I don't believe governments are going to go and solve the plastic problem. I don't believe charities are going to solve the problem. So we are trying to mobilize a mass movement of people to make small changes in their daily purchase habits, which when they add up is a massive um, change in, in the impact on plastic. And so the goal is to um, invite our customers to become owners of our business. So those people who are doing the heavy lifting and are making the change in the world financially benefit from the success of the business. It's a bit like um, going to the credit union and borrowing money from a credit union to make you a member. That's right. That's right. So you're looking at a membership base type thing and that could be as a shareholder. Correct. Shareholders and members. Yep. So, so we are planning on doing a, an equity crowdfunding round later this year, which will be the first opportunity for, share, for customers to become owners of our business. Uh, that's very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, um, and I guess we're sort of at the end of our podcast. I mean, there's, there's a lot in this um, <laughs> and for everybody to sort of digest. And it's, it's really good. I mean, I, but I normally give – and I'm asking lots of questions, but I normally give everyone an opportunity to ask me a question. So you got one for me? Yeah. This is a, an unusual question I ask everyone that I interview to come and work at Zeroco, mm. um, which is where are you at on your plastic journey of awareness and things that you're doing in your life or, you know, where are you at? What, what, what things? I'm, I'm, I'm acutely aware of the is- issue. Um, mind you, I haven't actually experienced, although other than what I saw, that story I told you about what I, what I saw in Malaysia, but I'm acutely aware of the um, pollution issue. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of acutely aware of um, uh, the small plastics through that are finding their way into, back into our own food, into the food chain. Yep. Um, um, I'm acutely aware of uh, my own personal use of single-use plastics. Um, where I can, I resist buying a bottle of water or I just won't do it. Um, generally speaking, you know, at work I don't have water bottles in my, my office. I used to have... I had an agreement with uh, this mob who um, had really good spring water and they used to just supply me all the time. I never had to buy it and it went on for years. But I, I actually stopped that about a year ago. Um, I just don't want that because it was coming in plastic bottles and uh, I just used to shit me. Um, in terms of, um, I, I guess I said right at the beginning of this, uh, more recently I've become aware of you know get, getting shakes and things like that in plastic containers to such an extent I don't want to do it anymore. So that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm acutely aware of it. Um, I'm not active in terms of I'm not an activist, um, but I wish someone, and I'm glad you're doing this. I mean, I, I, for example, would buy this product for sure. I mean, I would tell my, I would tell my um, office who buys my stuff, you know, they just basically go after what I've got the supplies in my house. But I'll tell them to have a look at this. I, and by the way, I wasn't aware of it until a producer got hold of it. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me is that I haven't heard of you prior to this. Yeah, okay. And that's you haven't got to me yet yep. through socials. Yep. Um, which is interesting because I'm all over socials. So yep. um, I haven't seen it yet. Yep. So I'm obviously aware of it now. Yeah, yeah. Through our production crew here. But yep. um, I think you probably do more more totally marketing in the, this the, regard. The days are the, the the days are early. Yeah, no, totally. So you've only been around a while, but like um, yeah. in terms of awareness, yep. I think you could do a lot more. Yeah. So, but yeah, but I, to answer your question, I'm acutely aware of the my of the of the problem more more than I am aware of the solution. Mm. 
I'm sure there's other solutions too, but this is a solution. I, th I think this solution is quite elegant. Mm. Thank you. Well, now you've got a solution for home and office. Yeah, no, totally. And actually, I'm looking at them. I would have those in my home. So I'd have that uh, zero hand wash thing in my house. Yep. Because it looks looks fine. It's cool. Yeah. I'd have like I have. We own accommodation businesses. My son and I. And uh, I would put in all my hotels and stuff like that too, because you know that's why I should bear the price. Yep. I was, you know, that old horse called self-interest. Yep. In every race, um, I was flogging him when uh, I wanted to find out what's your price is it equivalent. Yep. And we actually put that thank you soap in our accommodation places. So yep. if it's the same price, because yep. we're always trying to try and make as much money out of these rooms as possible, especially during the COVID, because travel has been pretty tough. Yep, totally. Um, but we would put that stuff in there because it's actually quite a nice looking bottle. I'm going to hold you that to Mark. Yeah, no, totally. No, you can. <laughs> I'm going to give you the old school hustle after yeah, this. Yeah, no, no, we, you can because we will do it. But no, that, that stuff we will definitely do. Amazing. Very good to meet you, Mike. Yeah, great Excellent, to meet you. excellent stuff. Great journey. Uh, out there, you've done it all. How old are you now? <laughs> 38 in a month. Fuck, you've done a lot. You've lived a lot of, lived a lot of lives in 38 years. I have. I have. Feel sometimes, exhausted? Sometimes I feel a bit exhausted. I do. You're going to kill it. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley. And production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. 